Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Dr. Dolly Chug. Dr. Chug is a social psychologist at the NYU Stern School of Business, where she studies the unconscious biases and unethical behavior of ordinary good people. In The Person You Mean to Be, she provides a practical and evidence-based guide on how to fight bias and become the good person you mean to be. We spoke with Dr. Chug about some of her key points in the book, as well as strategies that listeners can apply to their everyday lives. So joining us on the phone right now is Dolly Chug, author of The Person You Mean to Be, and thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michael. Of course. We're happy to. Um, So to start us off, what prompted you to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I... I'm like everyone else, I think, somebody who likes to think of themselves as a good person, but, you know, it's a complicated, confusing world, and I'm trying to sort of figure out what does it mean and how to navigate and how to treat people and diversity and inclusion. All these things are confusing and complicated. Um, The specific advantage I have in that, though, is I am also a social scientist, a psychologist who studies some of these issues and who is familiar with the research other scholars are doing in this field. And what I started to notice was all these confusing issues that most of us are navigating and what to do at the Thanksgiving table when somebody says something that we kind of think might be racist or how do we increase the pipeline of candidates from a variety of backgrounds at work. All these little things, there is some guidance in the research, the academic journals, but it's like hidden, dusty research that isn't reaching the general public. And so I wrote this book because I wanted to get that research out into the world, and I also wanted to make it more useful for me, too, as I'm navigating these spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what was the experience of writing this book like as you considered your own... um, areas where either you have privilege or lack privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I as I wrote this book, it really it was it was both sobering and inspiring to work on this book because mm-hmm. I realized I became more and more clear, as I think readers will as well, of ways in which I have blind spots. Um, I became, you know, one example is I've I've worked at some, you know, elite professional services firms, investment banks, consulting firms, and I've always thought of myself as someone who's been, you know, very, uh, very strong advocate of people of color and women, even though those groups are both underrepresented in those firms. Um, but I never really saw myself as part of the problem in why we didn't have uh, great representation. As I did the research for this book, it became more and more clear that, like, I really might be part of the problem, that there were all these things that um, there's been research that's shown we tend to over-focus in those kind of interviews on things like shared passion hobbies, you know, marathon running or craft beer brewing, things like that. 
which had nothing to do with the job. And I, I reflected back on all the people I've interviewed and how much time we've spent talking about things like shared hobbies and shared alma maters, two things which have little to do with the job but get equated with things like quote-unquote fit for the culture and, in fact, end up really making it harder for us to create more diverse and inclusive workshops. So sobering is part of the process, but inspiring because I began to also realize as I, as I went through the research that there's a lot more we can do that we have what I've been calling ordinary privilege. So the parts of our identity we think least about are also the parts of our identity where we actually have unusual influence, that people take us more seriously than the people directly affected in those groups. So white people, when they speak up on race, are actually viewed as less whiny and less entitled than black people when they speak up on race. It's not fair, it's not right, but it is in fact um, something that comes with privilege in that area. And, and that says there's no reason for us to feel helpless. There are things we can do when we wanna stand up for people. Um, and so in that way, the process was inspiring. Absolutely. Um, so throughout the book, it seems like kind of the advice you're giving readers is to is for them to embark on their own journey to go from a believer to ultimately a builder. Can you talk a little bit about those terms? Yeah. So I think of this book as being written for believers, and believers mm-hmm. are people who believe in diversity, believe in inclusion, equality, equity, you know, fill in your buzzword. Um, We believe in the promise of it. We care deeply about it. We see ourselves as good people. We believe. Um, But what believing is not the same as having the skills to build communities and workplaces and families and neighborhoods that actually live up to the promise of equality and equity and diversity and inclusion. There is actual work and skills required with that. And I think we we've fallen into a bit of a trap of just assuming that if we believe in it, it's the same as knowing how to do it and build it. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is, is separate those two a little bit. It's great if you believe it, but like now let's take the knowledge, some of that stuff that's been hidden in the journals, and use it to practice, to experiment, to make mistakes, to own our mistakes, to take responsibility for our own learning and get better and that's what building actually looks like Mm -hmm. and you talk about um all this kind of stemming from developing a growth mindset is what you call it um so having that for yourself looking for that in others um and you had mentioned earlier um reacting to a relative at a thanksgiving dinner who says something that's yeah maybe an off-color comment um how would you say people who want to go from believers to builders should confront people who make comments like this in a way that doesn't turn off this growth mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so the work on growth mindset um, and the term growth mindset comes from uh, Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck and her colleagues. They've done decades of really robust research where they've shown how what you believe about your abilities in a particular domain, it could be art, it could be math, it could be public speaking, it could be diversity and inclusion. What you believe about that domain and your abilities will translate into how you learn and grow in that area. So in a fixed mindset, I believe that my abilities are what they are. So for a long time, I really viewed my ability to draw like draw a person uh, in a fixed mindset. Like, oh, it's never gonna get better, I can't draw, there's really no point. Um, And 
activating a growth mindset about that, which I did accidentally through this like a silly animation workshop I ended up with with my kids, actually put me in a different space where I was actually able to get better at drawing, actually produce this identifiable <laughs> cartoon figure that, that uh, strangers were able to tell me that that was Olaf. Um, <laughs> and, and that's because through a growth mindset, I realized there were tools, there were um, skills that could be built in that area. So that's a quick summary of growth versus fixed mindset, how it can be applied in any area. And what it means is that when we encounter problems, challenges, and failures in a fixed mindset, we shut down. In a growth mindset, we get better. In the area of diversity and inclusion, we want a growth mindset, but we tend to have a fixed mindset. Why? Because we think we were just supposed to know these things. That's the believer versus builder difference. We think we're just supposed to know how to do this. And so what I'm trying to offer um, readers is the idea that if we could use a growth mindset to look at ourselves as works in progress, um, so when we have the Thanksgiving table mm-hmm. and the, the comment that's made by a relative, we have some choices there, both about how we view, whether we view that relative as having a growth mindset and whether we view ourselves as having a growth mindset. Um, I've been borrowing and adapting something called the 20-60-20 rule from um, organizational consultant Susan Anunzio. And what she, what she, the way she pictured the 20-60-20 rule is let's say 20% of people are kind of highly motivated on board with whatever new idea you're going to throw their way, right? Mm-hmm. 20% of people are comfortably miserable, she calls them, and they're not coming with you. We, we could say that they have a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. And 60% of people are in the middle. They don't quite know what they think. They are watching which way the winds blow. They're not super engaged in this topic. It's just not that important to them. Um, And they're often pretty quiet. So that 20 at the bottom, not quiet. The 60 in the middle, pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. Now the numbers may be right or wrong, 20, 60, 20. The point is that that middle group is a big group. And so when you're sitting at Thanksgiving table and somebody says something that you disagree with, what I suggest is that rather than um, retreating in anger and silence or engaging in some raging battle that takes over the dinner, that you do a quick calculation of, do you think you're dealing with somebody who's a 20, a 60, or a 20? If they're the 20 that's a fixed mindset, I, I encourage if, that you're not going to change that person's mind. But if you're going to engage with them, engage with them knowing that your real audience, your hidden audience, Mm -hmm. is the middle 60. It's everyone sitting around the table listening to the conversation are really the people you're trying to influence in that moment, more than the person you're actually having the back and forth with. And what that means is that you, you don't get as caught up in the ego battle as you might if you were only focusing on that 20. If you think the person's in that first 20 group that they're highly motivated, they just have a blind spot, and all of us do, then absolutely that's an opportunity to really lean into that conversation, to ask them if they're open to a new perspective and really engage with them. I think there's huge potential there. Middle 60, absolutely engaged. Stories are particularly effective, even more so than data, when someone is not deeply invested in the issue, stories are often the right path to persuasion. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so flip that around for a second. Let's say you're the one who 
make some kind of comment. Perhaps it's unintentional. Um, yeah. you, talk, you talk in the book about how whether you react to the shame or the guilt can really determine whether you're going to push back or push forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so research on shame and guilt, and there's been some lovely work also done by Brene Brown, and Ted talks about this. Um, so the distinction between shame and guilt is that when I feel shame, it's like a whole person, whole body experience. Mm-hmm. I think of myself as bad. When I feel guilt about something, I think of what I did as bad, but I don't feel my whole self is bad. And what research shows is that when we feel shame over something, we retreat and we stop trying. We don't, we were paralyzed, in fact. When we feel guilt about something, we're actually more motivated to fix it and and do better the next time. so if I'm the one at Thanksgiving dinner that makes the comment, and you know what, I have sometimes been that person that inadvertently says something terrible, and someone points it out to me, it, what I am hoping we can do, what I'm striving for myself, is that regardless of how someone points it out to me, whether they come at me strong or soft or politely or not politely, what I'm hoping for is if I really am viewing myself as a work in progress, it doesn't matter how they come at me. I use it as a learning moment. The reality, though, is when we shame people, there is many many times people will shut down, um, and so that is something for us to consider. That said, I want to caveat something that I've been talking a lot about lately, which is we have to be careful about policing the tone of people trying to point out our blind spots to us Mm -hmm. because often the people carrying that burden are also the people who are targets of bias and so what we're saying when we ask let's say an african-american person to watch how how they come at us and whether it's shame or guilt or whether it's polite or not polite when they're pointing out ways in which they are being hurt by our actions is we're putting a double burden on them not only are they the target they also now have to take on the responsibility for our comfort and feelings and i I want us to be i'm hoping to offer the reader um, some insight into how problematic that approach is Mm -hmm. i want to take um that bit you were talking about there and tie it in with what you had said earlier about um how people with, of privilege should speak up about things. Um, yeah. So how do people of privilege find the line between using their privilege to really help um, or inappropriately pulling focus away from minority voices who sometimes have things to say that people of privilege need to take a step back and listen to? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think that's actually one of the trickiest lines to walk in this work of um, how do you how do you use your voice without replacing other voices? Mm-hmm. I think the idea is that it is absolutely okay to ask if there's other people there whose voices could be more more um, legitimate than yours. So if I'm speaking out on an issue of LGBTQ rights and I'm straight and there are other people in the room who are directly affected and, and who, are, who are out, um, publicly out, it's absolutely okay for me to ask them, is it okay if I jump into this conversation and then back off if it's not, not get my feelings hurt. Where we run the risk of replacing voices is when we 
pull the attention to ourselves and keep it on ourselves as opposed to pull the attention to ourselves. Now we've got uh, people engaged in this conversation and then that's the moment when we should say, and I want you to hear more of what so-and-so was saying. Or if somebody's being interrupted in a meeting and is not being given appropriate attention from others in the meeting, that rather than saying, I'd like to go back, I really didn't hear what she had to say, do you mind finishing your thought? That we jump in and actually finish her thought for her. Those are two different ways of using our voice and our ordinary privilege. For sure, great points. Um, In the book, you also talk about the difference between diversity and inclusion, which so often can be used interchangeably. Um, But how does distinguishing them from each other help us to more effectively be, for lack of a better phrase, the people we mean to be. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I, I think of diversity as being uh, what I've described as the gateway piece. It's the, do you get through the gateway? Do you get in the door? Do you get in the organization? Do you get on the team? Do you get in the school? Um, it's, I've heard some people describe it as, you know, it's the numbers piece of it. Um, inclusion is what I think of as the pathway. It's like, okay, now you're in the door, but what actually happens on the pathway? Are you given the same opportunities as everyone else? Some people have described this as it, the difference is uh, not just making the numbers, but making the numbers count. If you have an inclusive environment, you don't just have people from a variety of racial and ethnic and um, gender and other backgrounds in the room, you're also accessing their great ideas, you're also giving them opportunities, you're also creating ways in which they have access to social capital and formal power and informal power in the organization. And that's, that's a lot harder than just getting people in the door. It often means it kind of goes back to the example I was giving about interviewing earlier. It goes back to all these habits we have of what we talk about and how we talk about it and who we sit next to in meetings and you know, what we assume is a given about how people spend their weekends and what, how do we build our social events and all those things that are just ingrained we need to think about and from a more um, diverse set of perspectives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So obviously this book has um, a wide readership. There are some people who can gain so much from this book. Um, What do you think that students in particular can learn from this book? Maybe especially incoming students who, if they're coming to a college campus, might be experiencing diversity in a way that they haven't really before. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, I hope students can see this as a path to how they can, like almost a how-to guide on how to make the most of their college or grad school experience. Mm-hmm. I wish I had done more of this when I was a student. I, I really just dealt, I had friends and I had, you know, I had very positive experiences in college and grad school, but in hindsight, I think I dealt with people in very surface ways, people who were different than me in very surface ways. I didn't take the time to get to know what was different about their background and to let them know what was different about mine. I'm Indian American, second generation, and I did a lot of just fitting in with the mostly white students around me as opposed to allowing them the chance to get to know what was truly different about my home life than theirs. And what I hope students can do is find ways both to tap into the community around them as well as feel more comfortable 
showing the community around them who they really are. Mm, definitely. Um, so we just have one more question for you, and this is sure. a question that we like to ask all of the guests on our podcast. Okay. Since this is um, primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, <laughs> oh that's a good question. I have so many. It's so many great teachers. You're going to make me choose publicly. <laughs> if you want to say more than one, we'll allow it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've really been very blessed. Um, Gail Bruno was a high school French teacher and a guidance counselor who was, was at the time so much more and continues to be so much more in the lives of many of her students. Um, she is someone who I'm now friends with. It took me decades to feel comfortable calling her Gail as opposed to Ms. Bruno. <laughs> and she, I wish I could say I was unique and I was special and that I'm the one she stayed in touch with, but she's in touch with so many. Like, I, I, I'm making up this number, but I think hundreds of her former students she has stayed in touch with over a career that has spanned decades. Um, she not only motivated us to learn, but more than that, I think she motivated us to really be full, well-rounded people because she saw us as full, well-rounded people. We weren't just students. We were also sisters. We were also brothers and sons and daughters and future parents. And she saw that in us. She saw our humanity and she was always the first to tell every one of us what she saw in us that was great and extraordinary she's a very special person that's awesome great well thank you so much this has been a an absolutely fantastic chat to have with you oh thank you so much i've enjoyed it so much michael thank you for having me of course enjoy the rest of your day you too bye bye thank you for listening to this episode of harper academic calling subscribe on soundcloud apple podcasts or your favorite third-party app for more episodes and be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.